Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing a couple of different air disasters. First, the Air France Flight 447, and then the Lake Constance mid-air collision. The key theme with both of these incidents is that they bring up questions of how humans and machines need to interact, and how this will keep being a question as technology continues to develop. Oh, I'm not excited. <laughs> I think at the beginning of all of them, I'm like, oh, I'm really excited in this one. I'm like, I'm not. I am so scared of flying. I do it a lot, but I am terrified of flying. And so I've always put off these types of episodes, even though they're interesting, because sometimes I feel like you shouldn't read too much into the things you're scared of, because <laughs> then you just find more things to be scared of. Uh, but over the last however many months, they've kind of come up again and again and I've I've looked into them in like brief pockets and so I'm like I was like finally I've just got to put it all together face the fear and talk about it but remember flying is very safe we only talk about these things because they don't happen very often and that's why it makes the news and stuff you know think of car crashes we don't talk about them you're much more likely to have one of those so yeah don't don't be scared Or if you are very scared of flying, like me, then don't listen to this. (laughs) Then listen to the next one. So yes. So before we go into the Air France 447, just a reminder to follow me on Instagram. I'm at when it goes wrong pod. uh, And do give me a rating or a follow or something. Tell a friend. Just, you know, do something to make me smile. That would be very appreciated. Okay. So we're going to take one at a time. And we're going to start with Air France 447. And we're starting on the 31st of May, 2009. And we're going to just talk about like the chronological events first and then go into what actually happened. So 31st of May, Air France 447 was flying from Rio in Brazil over the Atlantic to Paris. And it was an A330, so an Airbus 330, three pilots who were going to and 216 passengers. It had been fine for the first three hours so it had taken off okay chugging along okay it had left brazil and kind of entered the ocean and the plane was was changing a bit of air traffic control between sectors between the sectors on brazil to the sectors on africa because it kind of skirted the coast of africa so at this point three hours in the flight was due to change from air traffic control from Brazil to both the Senegal or Cape Verde air traffic controls. The plane didn't make contact. And so because, yes, I think in the OH370 we talk about um, how when you're flying over ocean, you can't always get contact with air traffic controls. So it didn't worry people initially if they don't hear from a flight, you know, initially because maybe they've slowed down or anything like that. So the plane didn't make contact, but after an hour, which to me seems quite long. Like, I understand it was like five minutes, but apparently they waited an hour. The air traffic controls uh, were trying to continually contact the plane, but failed. Uh, the air traffic control also asked other planes in the area if they could contact them. But that was also unsuccessful. So it became clear quite quickly that obviously the plane had been lost, but Similar to MH370, there hadn't been any mayday calls. There hadn't been any connection to other planes, to air traffic control, nothing. It was just, it had just gone. 
So they dispatched search and rescue to the area and eventually the some of the crash site was potentially located. Uh, so they found debris in the ocean along with an oil slick. But they couldn't find the actual plane. So the actual crash site could not be found. And I think that we talked about this in MH370 about how there had been a previous plane that had disappeared. I think that's why I ended up reading about it at the time that had disappeared and they couldn't find it underwater. And that was this one. And so they estimated that the plane was going to be really deep, but they needed to find it to obviously find out what had happened to it. And again, they asked these kind of questions. It was these types of articles which were like, how could we lose a plane? Like, how how is it that we can't find this crash site? Da, 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 da. Which would then be echoed a few few years later. But it was only in May 2011, after many search and search rescues, um, after many search operations to try and find it, that they did finally eventually find the wreckage. They did a lot of like complex simulations, again, similar to MH370 of where the plane should be. Uh, and then they kind of went out and, and sailed all about and, and scanned it with sonar. And that meant that they could find where it was. So similar to MH370, but the problem with MH370 is that the area of search was a lot larger. In this case, they had a generally a little bit of a better idea as to where it was. So they weren't searching quite as big, bigger spot, but they did find it. That was good. Uh, and they dove down and got the black box, which is not black, it's orange. Sure, you already knew that. Uh, but so once they found the black box, we actually could learn what went wrong. And it's one of those stories where it's like dull. Do you know, not dull, but like, like it was just. It, it's not like something really like low, like action packed, and loads of stuff happened. But I think that's what makes it scarier. But anyway. It's just, yeah, it's just a bit hard to believe, I think. So on the flight, we had three captain, three pilots. We had Captain Marc Dubois, who had logged almost 11,000 flying hours, so very experienced. And then he also had two first officers, David Roberts, with almost 7,000 hours experience, and then Pierre Bo Bonin, Bonan, who was the most junior at 3,000 hours experience. So they were all pretty well experienced pilots uh, because of the flight time. There had to be three pilots so that then one could always go and have a little rest. And it was just everything was as expected. Air France has, has an exemplary safety record. So everyone was feeling good. Plane was fine. And so the first three hours of the flight were really relaxed. No real concerns. And so in this first bit, Roberts, one of the first officers, went into the rest area. He was resting, but they were heading towards an area of bad weather, which was not unusual and was very manageable. And it was a bit of the ocean where, similar to like when you fly over the Bay of Bengal, when you're going to Australia, you always get bad weather because it's just like where, I don't know, the winds come together or something, something a weather expert could explain. But basically, there's like a known pattern of bad weather because of where the, the weather systems come together. And so they were coming up to that. They'd flown over it many times before. It wasn't something that should have caused an issue. 
so they were headed towards that area and most of the other flights in the area kind of had changed a bit of their their flight so bad weather you can fly through it but you can also go up above it or below it or kind of divert slightly to kind of loop around the bad weather system they have all that kind of information and a lot of the other flights had chosen to do some some kind of action like that just to minimize the amount of turbulence uh, that the passengers would feel which to be honest i really appreciate because i hate turbulence i think i hate takeoff the most and then i hate turbulence a second because i think once i'm up there i can kind of forget i'm in a plane until the turbulence happens and then i'm like oh yeah here i am in a plane so yeah appreciate that <laughs> pilots try and avoid that uh so yeah, they kind of hit this point. At this point, the captain left the bridge and... Left the bridge? I called it the bridge in this script. I'm just clearly so used to talking about <laughs> about boats. The captain left the cockpit and was swapped with Roberts. Um, but Benin, who was the most junior pilot, was designated as pilot flying the plane. So even though you've got two pilots, there's always one that's kind of designated pilot in control of the actual uh, control levers and stuff at that point. At this point, it, like everything seemed to be okay at this point. Bonin and Dubois had had a conversation about the weather, but they had decided not to do anything about it. They kind of said that we'd wait and see... Bonin at this point seemed a bit anxious uh, from the flight recording, kind of asking things a few times. And he was sitting, even though he was designated pilot flying the plane, he was sitting in the seat, which is usually for the pilot not flying. So already there was kind of maybe like just a little bit, just like a sliver, a sliver of disjointedness between what was going on. And then here is where it starts to go wrong. So at this point, there is a very slight mechanical failure and some ice, because of the bad weather system that they've entered, some ice was formed in some sensors of the plane. Something called like a... It's P-I-T-O-T, pitot, pito tubes, which are like sensors. I don't really know what they are, but I'll link something so you can read about them if you want. But some ice formed in those. And as the ice formed, it meant that they couldn't work. Makes sense. And because some of the sensors couldn't work, the autopilot, which is what had been flying the plane and what generally always does fly the plane when you're at high altitudes, was turned off. Not great. And at this point, that's a bit odd because, yeah, the, the autopilot generally always does work at the higher altitudes because it's quite a... You're keeping in a steady state, but you're also... There's kind of like a narrow like envelope, safety envelope that they're in. And so the autopilot's very good at, at doing that. So it's it's rare to fly, manually fly at those altitudes. It's much more likely to manually fly, take off, landing, etc. So anyway, the autopilot turns off. Bonin, who is the designated pilot in control, takes the controls and the plane's, you know, moving about a bit. And so he tries to write what's going on. At this point... The sensors are cut, like everything's kind of going a bit mad with what the sensors are, are telling them. So they're looking at all their gadgets and stuff, and and things are not reporting correctly. And they didn't, they just couldn't really understand what was happening with the plane. They couldn't really understand what was going on, like what what re readings were correct, what the systems were trying to tell them. And I'm not a good plane. I don't really want to know all the ins and outs of plane mechanics, so I I won't go into all the various things and angle of attack and all this stuff that 
it covers. I'll link that stuff below. But from a non-plane expert point of view, he started to climb. So he started to ascend on, on the plane, but he had previously talked about ascending and they decided that ascending wasn't a good idea, but they didn't really know what was happening, so they climbed. But because of how they were climbing, they were at risk of a stall. And I don't really understand what causes an aircraft to stall. It's something to do with the angle of attack, which is like the angle of the plane, but I'm not very good at physics. And I feel like whenever I read about it, it just hurts my head a bit. And they talk about like putting the nose up and putting the nose down. And I feel like it's always the opposite of what I think they should be doing. But anyway, so what was happening basically was that Bonin was doing some form of action at this point in terms of ascending. And that was the wrong thing to be doing. And because he was doing that, it caused the plane to slow down. Because the plane was slowing down, all the forces were out of whack. You know, the lift and the yeah force and stuff um, <laughs> was out of whack. And so therefore, the plane was at risk of stalling. Basically, all the engines shutting off and it falling into the sky. So, falling out of the sky even. Stall warnings were happening at this point. They're very confused. So Robert at this point tries to take control and he takes the controls on his side of the plane. So the joystick on his side of the plane. And really all they had to do was lower the nose of the plane to stop the stall. And that's what Robert tries to do. He tries to lower the nose of the plane. But Bonin was still using his controls on his side without really robert's knowing because almost the controls were like on the opposite side of him so if you think of a car almost the controls are like where the doors are rather than in the middle so he couldn't really see what was going on and so bonin was trying to lift the nose roberts was trying to lower the nose and they were effectively cancelling each other out so nothing was changing so everything's going wrong gadgets are flying about with numbers and stuff dubois at this point comes back because Roberts rings him about 20 times being like, come back, what's going on? All the alarms are blaring and the plane was at the wrong angle. And the stall warning sounded 75 times, but no pilots ever acknowledged it on the recording, which is terrifying. And I think that's probably because it's one of those things where they almost became desensitised to it because you can never, like to stall an aircraft is really hard. I hope. (laughs) sounds like it is and so therefore they just kind of ignored it and they had been trained to understand how to prevent a stall but what happened is the aircraft because of the wrong angles and the wrong forces had stalled so they didn't know what to do (laughs) the plane was stalled and they didn't know how to fix it they didn't know how to recover and so unfortunately they kind of the the plane was just free falling (laughs) This is like my worst nightmare. My worst nightmare. Oh my God. Um, the, the plane's just free falling. And yeah, one minute before they crash, they realised that Bonin had had like, had like had the nose the wrong way through this whole incident. And then they crashed into the sea. Yeah, it just, it astounds me. This whole thing only lasted like a handful of minutes. Which I think is the scariest bit because, ooh, ooh, just all of it. It just all makes me feel ill. And so then the plane crashed and then we know what happened after that. But what does this actually mean from our perspective? What it shows is we're coming back to this tech versus, I said we're coming back to it, we're starting with this tech versus human factors discussion. 
The tech was flying the plane. Autopilot was flying the plane, having a great time. Everyone was chill and relaxed. No issue. The tech stopped working and the human pilots couldn't discern what was actually happening with the plane. And that is the key issue because they couldn't get enough situational awareness of the key problems when the autopilot went off. So what? So they just couldn't process it almost in order to then figure out what to do and, and, and where to go. And the tech didn't give them enough in order for them to process it. And that's the very scary and very questionable part because what do you do about that? There was no effective handover between technology and the person. And obviously that was compounded by many other issues. We had the anxiety, we had the stress, we had the inexperience, which which came into it. There's other human and organisational factors which impacted this. But I think really one of it is this handout between tech and machine, tech and person. The other thing that it highlights as well is that humans don't often fly planes at high altitude because they don't need to. And therefore, when they did have to do it, they were almost a little bit out of practice. You know, if you don't do something that often, you're just not going to be used to it. And so therefore, as soon as you start doing it, you're much more likely to do it wrong, Uh, which I think really shows the kind of degradation of skills with tech as well, which I think is another interesting one. Because, you know, like people talk about how people can't like handwrite anymore because all we do is type, which, yeah. But I mean, maybe, maybe that's good, I don't know. But then the other irony from a technology perspective was that the autopilot actually recovered after the ice dissipated. So after the ice went, if the pilots had actually just turned the autopilot back on, the autopilot would have made the corrections and they would have been fine. But they didn't do they didn't didn't turn it back on. They didn't do anything like that. And it just comes out again and again, this question. And I don't think it's just relevant for planes, this kind of like tech to person handover. Think of Costa Concordia. That they turned the the autopilot off on that as well, which is when they hit the rocks. But even think about it around other pieces of tech that is coming forward, if we think about driverless cars for example, how do we balance the safety that an autopilot will bring versus having that awareness and being able to take it on? And I think the thing is, is that autopilot actually improves safety so much because it it allows more time and space and stuff for for human pilots to be thinking about other things that almost do we just have to accept that we are going to have this margin of error and there are always going to be accidents in a very safe system. I don't know. There was a very, very good article that was emailed to me, which I will talk about when I do references later, but there was a great quote from it, which I want to read out, which says, as anomalies and opportunity for error are designed out of a system, actors have less opportunity to get exposure to rare extreme events and less daily hands-on experience. Consequently, when unusual events do occur, they may may be ill-prepared to handle them. Which I think is so true. I think that it's, as our tech gets better and better in many aspects, we use it less. How do we do it? How do we do it? Super interesting questions. I do some of this stuff at work and I find it utterly fascinating. 
Back to Air France. <laughs> the prosecutor in France created a case against both Air France and Airbus for not providing enough training for pilots in situations where this may happen. Uh, and that case was dropped originally, but it was picked back up in May 2021 uh, and is now in progress. So we'll keep an eye on that. Which, yeah, it's hard. Like, it's hard to know because they did... It was 100% pilot error, but there's lots of other, as we know, there's lots of other factors that go into pilot error and what happened. Oh, oh, that was, that was a word. That was a word. Honestly, I read the transcript of that in the cockpit. I'll link it. It's just, oh, it just makes me feel ill. Makes me feel ill. But let's move on. Let's move on to another, another crash, another plane incident. This time, the Lake Constance mid-air collision. In this case, we have two planes involved, as you guessed from the mid-air collision title. We have Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937, which was flying from Moscow to Barcelona and had 69 people on board. And we have DHX611, which was a cargo plane from DHL, which was flying from Italy to Belgium, uh, which had no passengers and just two pilots on board. And in general, all the pilots across both flights were very experienced uh, and they had huge numbers of flight hours between them. Very tragic in general, but what makes this story even more tragic is that the Moscow flight sadly had a lot of children on board who were going for a post-exam holiday. So both planes were mid-flight and they were heading over Switzerland. And in Switzerland... Air traffic control was managed by a private company called Skyguide. Uh, so that was a private company that was just controlling a few sectors in that specific location. I think we covered a lot of this in MH370 when we talked about air traffic control. But just so you know, um, each air traffic controller manages like a specific sector of airspace or a specific area of airspace. Uh, and those sectors change. So you might in the day when it's really busy, be managing quite a small bit of airspace. And then at night, you put all these sectors together to make a big, a much bigger one because you've got less planes flying about. Um, but it's up to the controller to really understand exactly what's coming in and out of their airspace uh, and make sure that they navigate correctly through it. And so on shift, the night of uh, this incident was a man called Peter Nielsen. And he was an experienced air traffic controller, but he had several factors against him. So he was actually on shift alone at the time when it was about 11.30 at night. And usually there will be other controllers around uh, helping and, and also monitoring. And so that already was quite bad. Um, and even when they brought in the kind of policy of potentially people working alone, there was a lot of controversy on it as to what they like whether it was a good idea or not so yeah he was he was on on his own he had had another crew another controller with him who had just gone off on a break alongside that which most definitely should have happened he was also operating with reduced radar capacity due to routine maintenance and so they got onto the fallback radar and the fallback radar did not include what's called short-term conflict alert software that software that's on the main radar basically sounds an audible alert when two planes are at risk of collision. So 
very important software, as you would, as you would expect. Um, and the thing is, is that these two things, as in a person being by themselves and a radar being down, should never have happened at the same time. So you either need lots of people on because you've not got the software, therefore you need to be looking out for incidents, or yes, you might 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 be allowed to have one person on, but you have the software that you know will alert it. And I remember when I worked at air traffic, well, yes, when I worked at air traffic control, I would watch the radar and like they would like flash almost, like the little planes would flash when they were getting like in, in collision in like a potential collision line but but it happens all the time like they're like they're not gonna collide but they flash like oh they could but then obviously they're going up and down and then and then and then it goes off and it used to the first time i sat in front of it i was like why are they all like flashing up and flashing down and they were like no it's fine it's normal like planes do fly near each other and and cross paths and that kind of thing and that's okay the the job of the software is obviously when they're quite far away from each other they still flash just in case but then as it becomes more and more likely uh the thing yells at you a lot more (laughs) to make sure that you don't so at this point unfortunately nielsen was busy landing a plane on another screen and so he had he'd split his monitors out so he'd had one monitor with like en route traffic so planes at really high altitude that were flying about and then he had one monitor with he there was an airport a, a, a very quiet airport uh, which he was managing on another screen and he was busy looking at that, this other screen while the two planes were on a direct path towards each other at 36,000 feet. And they were effectively at right angles to each other. So they were kind of coming coming in different directions. But people are very smart and we know that colliding in midair is not a good thing. And so there is a fallback. You'll be pleased. And so planes have a system on board called the Traffic Collision Avoidance System or TCAS. And the idea with this is that it's in all planes and if your plane detects that it is on a collision course or at danger of a crash with another plane, then it will issue an order to both planes in order to avoid it. So as soon as it detects like, oh, plane ahead, it will tell one plane to immediately descend and one plane to immediately climb and ascend. And therefore, the crash will be avoided. So that's like the fallback of like, worst comes to worst. If an air traffic controller, you know, accidentally tells you to fly in the face of another one, that that machine is meant to be like the last stop, the last defense of like, nope, right, you up, you down. Thank God, we're okay. But unfortunately, on this night, for a series of reasons, that didn't happen. So Nielsen realised about one minute before the collision that the planes were on the collision course and he immediately issued guidance for the Russian plane to descend and the Russian plane followed that instruction. And unfortunately, the TCAS system kicked in and it just happened to inform the Russian plane to ascend, so go up, and the cargo plane to descend. So the opposite of what Nielsen, the air traffic controller, had said. And unfortunately, at this time, the air traffic, the sorry, the TCAS system had no way of informing the air traffic controller that it had told the pilots to do something and that it had told the opposite of what the air traffic controller said. What happened in this case was that the Russian pilot chose to follow the air traffic controller instead of the TCAS and descended. The cargo plane followed the TCAS and also descended. And yeah, that resulted in a collision and both planes disintegrated and everyone died, unfortunately. And it 
became clear after the incident that corporate culture was different between the two plane companies and the country. So in DHL, their pilots had always been trained to always follow the TCAS, whereas for the Russian pilots, they've been trained to take into account both the TCAC and TCAS and any instructions and then determine what action they wanted to take. So yeah, clearly they hadn't had aligned training. And so if they both followed the TCAS or both followed the ATC, they would have been all right. But the fact that just by horrific circumstance, horrific coincidence, this happens. And I think that's what is horrible about this one is that it is so like it's just such bad luck like that's what this one feels like to me is just luck the air france one feels more like incompetence this one just feels like a series of unfortunate events and just bad luck bad luck bad luck so yeah very very sad that all of the people involved sadly died so following the accident sky guide initially blamed the russian pilot but they soon decided to take responsibility and they said that it was their fault. And Nielsen sadly was, you know, traumatized by this, as you would suspect. And he had to go into medical care and retired. Sky Guide paid compensation to the families uh, of all those involved. And they were also taken to court and prosecuted with four managers getting a prison term due to their actions, uh, especially in regards to the maintenance of the radar and the fact that that uh, system was unavailable and the low number of personnel on shift um, because those, those two things shouldn't have happened. Those two things should not have happened. Then, fast forward a little bit. There was a man called Vitaly Kaloyev, and he very sadly had both of his children and his wife on board the flight, uh, and sadly all three did die in the accident. And so following this, Kaloyev had a nervous breakdown and was just an absolute wreck, as you would suspect in those kinds of circumstances. But once the cause of the crash was known... Kaloyev hired a private investigator to track down Nielsen and find his address as he had retired and was living in Switzerland at the time. Kaloyev then travelled to Switzerland and stabbed Nielsen to death in front of his wife and children. Which is so tragic. <laughs> like, so tragic. It's just awful. Yeah. I mean, all like awful on both sides, but like I say, I feel like it, the the accident I felt like was more bad luck, but clearly this guy didn't. This guy thought it was all Nielsen's fault, and yeah, stabbed him down, um, tracked him down, and stabbed him to death, which is yeah, really just all oh, bit sad. He was arrested and prosecuted in Switzerland, but he was only charged with eight eight, eight years in prison, which I thought was quite short for premeditated murder uh, and he was paroled after only two years again very short like i get i think he got it under diminished responsibility which fine i get that but that's not a long time for killing someone <laughs> really isn't uh, but yeah he was paroled after two years and then he returned to russia and in russia he was seen as a hero uh, um, because they kind of believed in this like the area was in, believe, more in like blood feuds and he had done the right thing to avenge his family and, yeah, avenge the people that were involved. Which I don't, I don't agree with. I don't. 
I think that's why I couldn't be an air traffic controller. Like, think of that stress. I mean, thankfully, this doesn't happen very often, if ever. But yeah, imagine. I mean, imagine being on the plane, horrendous. But then imagine being Nielsen and causing that, and then like the guilt of it. Oh, and then being stabbed to death. Not, not great. So yeah, again, this one was slightly different than Air France 4747. But similar kind of theme in terms of like people versus machine and what to believe and when. Again, the handover from person to machine wasn't clear. And again, they just didn't have full situational awareness between what the plane was telling them versus what the air traffic controller was telling them. And I think it raises similar questions of... What do you listen to? How do you make sure that, you know, like what takes precedence? How do you decide that? How do you have full awareness of everything that's going on? I think they're different, but they show a similar issue and something that we'll continue to have to, yeah, manage. Uh, Luckily, in the second one, it was a bit clearer in terms of making sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, So the TCAS system has been upgraded and it will now also inform air traffic controllers that it's been alerted. Still potentially not foolproof and there have definitely been more mid-air collisions since. There's a Wikipedia page on all the mid-air collisions. But in a lot of those, it was like the TCAS wasn't working, that type of thing, rather than a situation like this. But yeah, both horrendous. Oh, I just hate it. Um, in terms of what we learnt then thankfully there's been lots of improvements and there have been training improvements so more manual flying for pilots when in low risk areas which is great uh, technical improvements on handover more understanding of what the what the devices are telling you and what their kind of current state is that type of thing but it will it already has prompted a lot of wider questions, especially as, like I say, as more AI is used in different circumstances, different situations. How can we improve and understand this relationship between person and machine? And how do we make sure this stuff doesn't happen again? I don't know. But thankfully, a lot of smart people are thinking about it. So very sad. But I've got some good references for you. So first of all, I have to say, Big thank you. Two big thank yous. First of all, to Andrew McLaren, who is a listener, who sent me an email uh, about this and sent me an email with links to his friend's papers on this, research papers on this, which was so interesting. And the paper that I read and recommend was called Cognition, Technology and Organisational Limits, Lessons from the Air France 447 Disaster by Nick Oliver, Thomas Calvard and Christina Potoknik. Um, and that's what I quoted from earlier. So I really recommend reading that. They also contributed, the same authors contributed to a Harvard, Harvard Business Review article, which I'll also link in case you can't get that article, in case you can't get the paper, have a read of the article. Very good. It's called The Tragic, Cla- the Tragic Crash of Flight AF447 Shows the Unlikely but Catastrophic Consequences of Automation. So yes, highly recommend those. 
Also on Air France 447, I recommend there's a 99% Invisible episode, two episodes. They're quite old, uh, but they're called Children of the Magenta, which covers Air France 447, discusses this whole concept of kind of human and machine, but then also talks a lot about driverless cars and about what it will mean within driverless cars and how we can um, learn from that for the the handover of of what to do because almost it talks about with driverless cars how if you are going to you know if it comes across a hazard and it immediately passes the responsibility from the autopilot back to the driver which potentially it could do and then that driver is too late the driver can't do anything the driver can't compute whose fault is that which is a very hard question to answer so yes highly recommend that episode um, it is good. Children of the Magenta apparently is uh, refers to pilots who are servants to their magenta lines and don't don't think for themselves, which I thought was interesting as well. So yes, highly recommend all of those. Another thank you to Beck on Instagram who recommended the Air Constance, the Light Constance disaster because I hadn't actually heard of it before uh, and I fell down many a rabbit hole reading about that. It's also called the Uberlingen Midair Collision. So I will link to a few good articles on that. There was, again, a really good article, like paper, academic paper, on the factors that influenced that incident. And that's well worth a read. So I'll link that as well. So yes, lots of lots of interesting reading um, online about these two. I didn't read a book and I didn't watch anything on it because I don't want to see it. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't understand how these people watch like Air Crash. A crash investigation or whatever it's called, because it sounds horrendous. But if you enjoy it, great. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever do planes again. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. You can follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod, or you can email me with any feedback, any episode requests, any anything to when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. Uh, and please tell a friend about the podcast. I would really appreciate it.